You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Investing is a competitive game. You are in there trying to find the cheap assets, and so is everybody else. You are in there trying to hold more at the right time and less at the wrong time, and so is everybody else. So to some extent, you have to learn to think different from others and better. Thinking different is not enough if it's worse. It has to be different and better. And that is the concept that enables you to find the errors that others are making. Yes, I think another important principle you have is you need to stay in the game. Right. And maybe explain that a little further because that's kind of a, a motto of your business. Well, that's another of the important sayings in the investment business. Never forget about the man who was six foot tall, who drowned crossing the stream that was five feet deep on average. I never heard that story. <laughs> well, the point is, to be a successful investor, at minimum, you have to survive. Surviving on the good days is not the issue. You have to be able to survive the bad days. The idea of surviving on average 
is not sufficient. You have to be able to survive on the worst days. Super excited to have Howard Marks, head of Oak Tree Investment Management. Is that, is that how you say it? Oak, Oak Tree, Tree Investment Capital Management. Management. Oak Tree Capital Management. It's got $120 billion in assets. It's a combination of all sorts of funds. We'll kind of describe it in a little bit. But also, you just out is your new book, Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side. Uh, it's all, I also would be, I have to mention, your number 374 on the Forbes Most Wealthy list, uh, worth about $1.91 billion. Welcome to the show, Howard Marks. Thank you very much. Do you much. hate that actually being introduced as like a billionaire? <laughs> I do, you know. I apologize. Well, that's okay. I mean, on the one hand, the people want to hear it and it gets you more, uh, more attention. But on the other hand, they don't say, here's Howard Marks, right-hander, or Howard Marks, tennis player, right. or Howard Marks, father of two. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that how much money I have sums me up, and I don't think it's the greatest thing about me. So, Well, well let's talk about that for a second, because I agree. So, and, and clearly having multiple billions doesn't make your life any easier or better than, let's say, you had a few million or 10 million, right. whatever, right. Or, sure. or even less, depending on how much you loved your job. You right. know, I always think loving what you do and having well-being and contentment is much more about freedom than simply having a billion dollars. There's no question. You know, James, I use a lot of quotes in the book and in my writing, my speaking, and, and my favorite quote is from a guy named Christopher Morley, an English writer, and he said, there's only one success, to be able to live your life your own way. Yeah, that's totally true. It's profound. And, um, you know, uh, I'm lucky that my job has given me the rewards, the satisfaction uh, um, that it has. Yeah, it's like, it's like well, your buddy Warren Buffett says he, he skips to walk, work every day. That's right. And, you know, so actually, this is a tangent to your book. Well, let me ask you about this theory I have. So people say to other people, hey, what's your net worth? Like I just said yours. And... Sometimes it's a number in the bank, like, oh, someone has $12 million cash in the bank, $50,000 cash in the bank, and then they have some investments or whatever. But I also think if you love what you do and it's fairly stable, your income stream, which not every income stream is, but if you love what you do and let's say you work for yourself and, and you have an income stream of, let's say, 200000 a year, I'm just making the numbers up, if you use what a risk-free return is, let's say it's 4%, right. making that up, then you could essentially say your net worth is 25 times the amount of money you make per year that's dependent on what you love doing. So it's kind of like a love net worth, but financially speaking. So that person who's worth makes 200,000 doing exactly what he loves or she loves every day is worth in some virtual sense about 5 million. Right. It's like a theory I have. Well, it's a good theory. All right, good. I'm glad, but um, but you you have both sides of it, which is, of course, you've you've earned a, a good amount doing what you do, and and, and you love what you do. Um, and 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 your book, which is about, which talks both philosophically and historically and practically about uh, market cycles. For uh, you know, a great example being, you know, the early 2000s after the internet bubble burst, we had this stock market and 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 housing market financial boom, which ended in the great financial crisis. You talk a bit about that book. And, and you use that example and other examples to describe how practically even the average investor can start to 
understand what it means at a market top or a market bottom or in the middle, and then how much risk to take at, in those situations and what kind of assets to invest in. And you've done this very well for yourself successfully over 50 years, or particularly with Oak Tree, its average returns per year are 19%, which are phenomenal. And in, and in some of your distressed debt funds, it's, it's, it's in the mid to high 20%, which is really unbelievable. So, so you've really not only enjoyed what you've done, but speaking about why does someone introduce you based on a number uh, like how much one's worth or where you are on the Forbes list? It's kind of a, it's kind of like you might say, oh, such and such tennis player is ranked number four in the world. So it shows, okay, I'm, well, if this guy speaks about tennis, I'm going to listen to him. If this guy's playing a game of tennis and I want to see excellence on tennis as opposed to my kid playing tennis, <laughs> I'm going to watch this guy. So, for, you know, that's the reason I mention it. You wrote a book on mastering the market cycles, but you're not, you know, people should listen. You've done this successfully for 50 years and, and investing successfully for 50 years does pay off. And, you know, Oak Tree, you started in 1975. So there's a lot of interesting things there. Uh, all right, was it 1975? 95. Ni oh, 19, sorry, 1995. You know, the longevity of your business is also interesting. You've had a lot of consistency in your life and I think a lot of the philosophy about mastering the market cycles is related to mastering personal cycles too. You call, you know, in this book and in your other book, you call it second level thinking, understanding it's almost like the second derivative of where we are in the markets, of where we are in life, like not the ups and downs, but are the ups and downs increasing is now the time to change. Like being able to take a step back and understand when change is required. Right. And you, you, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll let you talk in a second. I feel like I'm telling you, but I want to, uh, I want to sum up your book in some of your quotes. Like every time I hit a new quote, I underlined it and I thought to myself, that really sums up this book. But then I hit another quote later on. But basically the idea is a market cycle can also be described as like a pendulum. And so when the pendulum is moving in one direction, more and more energy is going into it, pushing it more and more in that direction until finally there's no more energy left. And then just when things seem like it's going to go on forever, the, the pendulum might even go all the way around, boom, there's no more energy and it goes all the way back down to the middle and then it goes all the way the other direction. Exactly. I think that, you know, we all talk about cycles. Uh, in a way, the pendulum is a better analogy. I, I use the pendulum to describe uh, investor psychology. Uh, uh, for some reason. Which is related, uh, though, to yes. market cycles. Oh, very much so. And and uh, as I say in the book, I, there's no real reason why I call, think about the, the uh, you know, the uh, economy cyclically, but the but psychology, psychology as a pendulum, but uh, it works for me. Yeah, and, and, you know, you make the, you make the really interesting point that when times are good, and they, they could be legitimately good in the sense that unemployment is low, housing starts are high, the stock market is going up, the economy is doing well, private companies are making profits, uh, everything seems good. But that's the time when there's many reasons to at least be skeptical. So for instance, if everything feels good, banks might decide, you know what? Everything's so good and the unemployment's so low, we're gonna start lending money to maybe people who otherwise we wouldn't have lent to, and we're going to lend and let them buy a house because we know historically 
housing rates are good, the economy's great, and it feels like it's going to continue forever. And so gradually what happens is worse and worse assets are being invested in precisely when times are good. Bad assets aren't being invested in when times are bad. You mentioned the reverse happens. When times are bad, nobody wants to lend because everyone's scared. This is the psychology point. And so they'll only invest or lend to high quality assets. And so that's what begins the next boom because high quality assets will go up and everybody will say, oh, things are good now. And they more and more people start piling in. Well, to use a crazy example, uh, this could never happen, but let's say that things were going so well in the world that the bank said, we're going to lend money to people without asking whether they're employed and without asking to see their financial statements. Well, that could never happen. <laughs> you're, that's, you're in a comedy club, so you're making a joke because that did happen. That did happen. It was called the subprime crisis. Those things were called liar's loans. And, and how about this? You can go into a lender and you can say, I'd like to borrow money for a, buy a house. And he'll say, well, if you can document your employment and your assets, I'll lend to you at 7%. But if you can't document those things, you're going to have to pay 10. And you say, oh, I'll pay 10. What does that say? If you prefer to pay a higher rate of interest, it says for some reason you don't want to have to document your income. In other words, you're lying about your financials and they say, okay, great, here's the money. You mentioned, I mean, we can talk forever probably about the 2008 financial crisis, but it is worth mentioning because it's such an extreme of investor psychology. You know, there were several things that were happening. One is uh, nobody thought people could default because the economy was going so great. It it legitimately was great in like 2006. And because there hadn't been a nationwide wave of defaults in over, let's say, 80 years. Yeah. So people tend to say, well, that could never happen. But then what happens is also interesting, which is that in these times of financial boom, investors, because they want to be actively involved and make even more money, they have financial innovations. Right. So they say, okay, well, we'll, um, you know, we'll put together uh, a diversified assortment of these subprime loans. And because it's diversified, it'll have a high rating. So banks are allowed to invest in it. So these kinds of innovations that never existed before happen at, because there's so much eagerness to, to invest or spend or lend money, you have to have vehicles to do it with. Exactly. And if you think about it, James, you can't innovate in bad times. Right, because, because there's no money. No, well, there's no money and there's no trust and everybody's uh, allergic to taking risk. You can only innovate in good times. And in good times, people are not so skeptical. They're not so demanding. They're not so careful in their analysis. They don't use conservative assumptions. They say, sure, we'll take a shot. Maybe that'll work. And and the, that's why the, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that the worst of loans of may, are, are made in the best of times because of this willingness to take a chance. Right. Hyman Minsky was a, an economist who said that stability is destabilizing. Yeah, because, and, and it's interesting because, in, and I want to touch on one other aspect of that, which is that the laws also kind of change in the favor of putting more money to work in good times. So, so but, but you have to be careful, like not too many, and you pointed out in the book, but not too many people are aware that a, a, a huge chunk of what happened to Lehman Brothers and other banks specifically towards the end of 2008 was that the law changed about how you mark your assets. So people wanted 
more transparency in banks, which they had good intentions, but, and this is kind of hard to explain in a, a podcast, I, I won't bother trying, but many assets changed from mark to value to mark to market, and then Lehman Brothers collapsed. Right, so everybody assumed, well, everybody assumed more information is better, more transparency is better. So you should mark your market, your assets to market every day. But the trouble is if you're in a crisis, you're mark, the banks are marking down their assets, the very act of the markdowns reduces the confidence in the banks and causes more markdowns. And it's, it becomes a, a, a vicious circle. And because of the increased leverage that the banks were allowed to use, I mean, I think it was with Lehman Brothers, just a 1% move in the prices of some of these, um, you know, mortgage-backed uh, derivatives was enough to collapse a, a trillion-dollar company almost. Exactly. And, and so, so on the one hand, on the flip side of that, then, you take a period like, uh, well, 2009, okay, where you were heavily involved in, you know, your firm was heavily involved in kind of the government's attempt to inject more money into the mm -hmm. market. Uh, there is no lending happening. Right. And so almost by definition, any loans that do happen, these are the highest quality assets possible. And, and that's what's going to mark the next boom because these are going to go up, which will give comfort to middle income investors call them or retail investors, which will then lead to a, eventually the pendulum will go too far again to the next boom, which is sort of what happened. But let me ask you this, 2008, you were spot on. You had called it, you had started calling it in 2006 that, hey, we need to start being skeptical. Things could be happening. In 2008, you raised $10 billion for your firm to invest in distressed assets before they were even distressed. It was very uh, good foreshadowing. But at that point, things got so bad at the end of 08 and early 09 that it really required, maybe yes, maybe no, but it seemed to require government intervention to save the economy. Without that government intervention, would your raising 10 billion and perhaps putting it to work in 2008 would have looked foolish? Well, what I would say is that at any point in time, and, and a lot of people don't appreciate this, there are lots of possible outcomes. And it, I use the analogy in the book repeatedly about drawing a ticket from a bowl, which has lots of lottery tickets in it. And the ticket that was pulled out of the bowl in 09 and then 10 and 11 and resulted in a massive recovery was a favorable ticket. And it didn't have to be that favorable. Now, I believe that we were, as you say, well-timed in raising that fund. And we aggressively put it to work in the fourth quarter of 09, uh, 08 when things were selling cheap because of the uh, Lehman bankruptcy. Um, I think we would have done okay, even if the recovery had not been as quick and as strong. Like as what it was. would have happened if the government didn't take the steps it did, you know, uh, inject, uh, you know, 20 billion into the mm -hmm. base capital of each bank, uh, you know, open the credit window of the Fed much larger, you know, all these things that it doesn't normally do, it did to keep the banks open, to keep them lending potentially to high quality consumers and assets. Like, what do you think would have happened if, if the bailout didn't occur? Well, that's a great question. Uh, one of my favorite books is called Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. I, I was going to bring it up because Good. 
you could have been fooled by randomness in 2000. You're the exactly. one who survived. Maybe the people who raised the 10 billion in 2007 didn't survive. Right. And in fact, um, uh, you know, maybe I've been a beneficiary. But the point is, Taleb talks about alternative histories, which I describe as the other things that reasonably probably could have happened but didn't. So you want to explore some of those. We're actually a little sore at Oak Tree because the government precipitated such a strong and quick recovery that there were unusually few defaults and bankruptcies coming out of the global financial crisis at, at, the, uh, at the bond issuer level. And normally, one of the reasons that our distressed debt funds historically have done well, as you described, was that in the low of the cycle, companies go bust. The creditors take them over. On low valuations, the valuation recovers. And even though we bought bonds and held bonds on the way down, we hold equity on the way up and we make a lot of money. But in this particular go-round, because of the recovery efforts, there were surprisingly few defaults in bankruptcy. And that fund was a good performing fund, but we think that if other tickets had been drawn from the bowl, it would have done even better. You know, um, well, what do you mean? What are, if other tickets have been drawn from the bowl, what, what could they have looked like? Well, if the government response had been slower and not as skillful, the economy would have done worse. The recovery would have been deeper and longer. More companies would have defaulted and gone bankrupt. And we as the bondholders would have become the owners and we would have made more money in the eventual recovery when it happened. Yeah, it reminds me of, let's say, 2001, 2002. So Enron went bankrupt. It was a typical market cycle, as you described. So these sort of um, hybrid energy companies like Enron were hot in the late 90s and in 2000. Enron goes bankrupt because of corruption, but then every legitimate utility company, like just your standard guts utility company, they all started trading as if they were going to be the next Enron. So I imagine that was like, because everyone was risk averse, like, oh my gosh, everything is an Enron. I can't sure. trust any utility company anymore. And I imagine that's the sort of opportunity where there's no government bailout and things recovered slowly. I imagine you, you did well. Well, that's an extreme example, uh, James, of a of, of market cycle. You think about it, there's a, there's a secular trend, an upward trend that the economy is on and the markets are on and the economy and the markets, you know, it's, they're higher every decade than they were in the previous decade. There's an upward underlying direction. But we have fluctuations around the underlying trend. And I describe those fluctuations as excesses. So the point is, rather than everything selling at the happy medium of what something of every what everything is intrinsically worth, sometimes it sells for much much more, and sometimes for much less. The key is to figure out which is which. So you were talking about pre the Enron bankruptcy, they were all selling as if they were great. The truth is, some of them were okay, some of them were not so great, but some of them were terrific. But in a period of positive attitudes, they all sold as if they were great. And then Enron goes bankrupt. Now everybody says, oh, I don't trust any CEOs. I don't trust any financial statements. I don't trust Arthur Anderson. And, and by the way, and now they're all crap. So now, before some of them were 
not so great. Some were okay and some were terrific. Now they're selling like they're all terrible. Values, prices vastly undershoot intrinsic value. That's a down cycle. And we should be able to profit from that if we can see it objectively and and move on it unemotionally. But And that was a case where, unlike 2009, the government wasn't buying all the debt of these energy companies. So you were able to go in right. there and buy... And by the way, when it means to buy cheap debt, it means you're buying, a, you're, you're taking over a loan that the company took out. And because it's been cheap, instead of their original loan, which might've been paying, they've been paying 5% interest or 6% interest on to their, the bank or the investors, you're getting like 19 or 20% or more. Well, the, the key step is that let's say they borrowed $10 million from a bank and we go in and we buy that loan for $4 million. Right. So we we get the we if they pay we get the interest they promised to pay but on a much lower cost which gives us a much higher yield and if they don't pay generally speaking in bankruptcy the old owners are wiped out and the creditors become the new owners. Right. So if there's real value there backing exactly. the loan like in a house for instance yes. or in a utility company you have your your in you're a monopoly on providing the energy for you know a thousand square miles or whatever. There's an asset there underneath. Exactly. So you benefit. You know, and and just to put a little bit of math, just to explain to the listeners, somebody borrows a ten million. Let's just hypothetically say they're paying ten percent interest, right. so they're paying one million a year. Now everybody's afraid. And by the way, you you constantly point out in the book and and even in this podcast, it really is all related to psychology. Right. So investors are afraid. No one wants to touch this utility company anymore. So they'll only pay $4 million. It only costs $4 million for you to buy the debt. But the company still owns a, owes a million a year. So instead of paying 10% a year, they're paying 25% a year. Exactly. As long as we get paid, we get a terrific yield. And then the $4 million might go back up to $10 million. Or, or you take over it, the company. Or it may go into default. We take over the company. And hopefully, in the long run, it's worth even more. So, so there, there's... Three things I want to point out first in the book. One is I love your quote where when you're looking at an investment asset, what part of that price, what part of the price of that asset is based on reality and what part is based on optimism? So as an example, if you were going to buy a house in, uh, let's call it East Hampton by the ocean, which is a very attractive spot for many Manhattanites, there's a certain amount of optimism baked into the price. That's considered a very, you know, nice place to live. And if you were just a few miles south in West West Hampton, it might not be as expensive. Even though it's the same house and the beach looks the same and the ocean's the same, there's a certain amount of optimism you're paying for or premium-ish. Yeah, privilege you're paying for or whatever. Yes. So so I like that quote because it could be applied to many aspects of life, even human psychology. Well, investing well... It's, it's not merely a matter of what you buy. The most important moving part is what you pay. You can buy a great asset, but if you overpay, you're not going to have success. You can buy a terrible access, asset, but if you buy it cheap enough, you could be a big winner. So the first step is to be able to value the asset and come up with something that we value investors call it the intrinsic value. The second step is to Which see, is a whole science to itself. A whole science. And, the, and, and there's many and, books on it. Exactly. The second step is to t 
take a look at how the current asset price comports or compares with that intrinsic value. We want to buy things for less than they're worth. So the, the real question is, what causes assets to sell for more than they're worth or less than they're worth? Largely the cycle. And what causes the cycle? Largely emotion or optimism. I say in the book that if, I'm, if I want to buy an asset, what I want to know is how much optimism is baked into the price. And uh, in, in short, you don't want to buy when everybody's optimistic because the chances are that that optimism will have elevated the price and the price will exceed the intrinsic value. In other words, a losing investment. You want to buy when nobody's optimistic. And uh, if there's little optimism in the price, chances are you're getting a bargain. So understanding what's going on and where we stand in that process is largely a matter of understanding the cycles. So, so how would you go about, how do you personally go about determining, hey, there's a lot of optimism in this baked into the price of this optimism uh, of this asset. Okay. Like you're, you're, let's say you're thinking of buying Apple stock and you decide, you know what? It's not worth a trillion dollars. Maybe it's worth 600 billion. Would you say then the other 400 billion is because, oh, kids love their iPhones. So their dads and moms are, you know, excited about owning the stock that their kids are buying the phones and there's optimism in there. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what I try to do and try to explain in the book and what I think is the skill that I'd like people to develop is, is the ability to look at the market and do what I call take its temperature and understand, is it a hot market or a cold market? Are people optimistic or pessimistic? Are they greedy or are they fearful? Are they risk tolerant or risk averse? Are they believing or are they skeptical? If people are optimistic and greedy and risk tolerant and, and believing, then prices will, everything else being equal, be higher than they should be. We want to see that, understand what it means, and act accordingly, which is to take risk off. But meaning on, meaning, meaning own fewer either own fewer assets or own safer assets. You don't have to get out of the market. You could shift from risky assets to safer assets when you feel that the risk, the market is a risky place. Look at today. I don't think things are so bad that people should get out of the market, but they can cut their risk by owning safer assets rather than more aggressive assets. On the other hand, when people are pessimistic and fearful and risk averse and skeptical, everything else being equal, take those things together, prices will be lower and perhaps lower than they should be. And when at prices are lower than intrinsic value and lower than they should be, that's the time to become more aggressive. Either put more cash into the market or switch from safe assets to aggressive risky assets. It all comes from understanding where we stand. Uh, that is the skill that uh, you know I wanted to help people develop. And I think this book does a great, you give so many examples and go through history and, and describe your philosophy and so many things. Like I love when you point out uh, how contrarianism doesn't necessarily mean being negative. You know, we could be in a down market and a contrarian would say, hey, time to buy. But exactly. it's usually not, that's not usually called contrarian investing because people, I find people usually don't like, uh, 
uh, buyers who are, who are buying in a bad market. Right. People usually make fun of them. Oh, you're stupid. The world's falling apart. It's different than in a, than people who don't buy in a, in, in, if you don't buy in a good market, you're called, it said you're missing out. But if you don't buy, but if you do buy in a bad market, you're like an idiot. Well, <laughs> that, or, that's what or they call worse, you. you know, uh, the, the distressed debt funds that we've run used to be called vulture funds. And people would say, oh, you're a vulture. Why is trying to buy when prices are low vulture activity? And yet, you know, it, it, it's these names, uh, if they scare others off, we like that. We like to have the field to ourselves. Or it's like Warren Buffett says, when he goes to the grocery store, he wants to pay less for the hamburger, not, he doesn't want to pay when the hamburgers were all exactly. on a, a premium to what they were the day before. Well, that's, that's another aspect of, of the temperature of the market. You know, uh, you buy a stock at 60, it goes to 80. Most people say, hey, I think I'm onto something here. I'm going to get more. It goes to 100. They say, now I'm sure I'm right. I'm going to double up. But if you buy a stock at 40 and at uh, 60 and it goes to 40, most people say, well, I'm not sure of my thesis. Maybe I should lighten up. And if it goes to 20, they say, I'm going to get out before it goes to zero. Because In other words, they want to own more when the price is high and less when the price is low. And that's the opposite of what Buffett's talking about. You know, he says, I like hamburgers. I eat more hamburgers when they're on sale. The stores are crowded when things are on sale. Only in the investment markets do people want to hold less the lower the price goes. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, 
where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You know, we talked in the very beginning. We started off, I introduced you by what you do, by the book, and by your net worth. And you mentioned that, you know, often uh, you don't like to be measured that way, which I understand. But... To some extent, having some money allows you to take off the table fear of financial insecurity. So if there's 100 million investors in the United States, 99 million of them or more are scared when the markets are down, legitimately scared. Because, because as 
you know, and you have the quote in this book, the, the famous quote, the, the markets could stay rational uh, or irrational longer than you can say, stay liquid or whatever. Solvent. Solvent. Uh, so you could go bankrupt pouring money in during bad markets if the badness continues. Exactly. Because so, and here, here's here's me playing the devil's advocate to what you're saying. It's one thing to say, okay, we're maybe everybody's feeling a little too exuberant, or maybe everyone's feeling a little too pessimistic. But as we know, Greenspan thought we were exuberant, and whenever it was 1996, 1997, things stayed exuberant for another three years. A lot of hedge funds that were shorting went out of business between 1997 and 2000. Well, that's you know that's that's what's endemic to the investment business. Uh, there. They're, one of my favorite sayings is that being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. In 96, Greenspan said, we are beginning to see signs of irrational exuberance. Now, he was right, but he was four years too early, and it didn't feel like right in the meantime. As you say, a lot of people left the market as a result of the 90s uh, because either they were short uh, and, uh, and uh, got carried out, or they were uh, afraid, failed to participate uh, in the boom, and their clients deserted them. So, uh, you know, in the investing business, we sometimes know what's gonna happen. We never know when. Uh, we should never act with extreme conviction. Uh, the the world, if you're a Taleb reader, fooled by randomness, you know the world is too uncertain to permit certainty. Mark Twain, I think, said it best. He said, uh, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for certain that just ain't true. And, uh, you know, if you admit to uncertainty, you're unlikely to get carried out. So let's let's extrapolate that to something outside the market, like something in your personal life, say, because the same rule applies. Like you even talk about it, success breeds a certain sure. relaxation of your decision-making. Exactly. Well, you know, our look, uh, our wives always claim that men are not good at asking directions. And let's say after our interview today, I wanna drive from New York to Boston. Now, if I am appropriately humble about my knowledge of the geography, I will get a map, ask directions, turn on the GPS, and drive slowly enough so that I don't make wrong turns. But if I'm cocksure that I know the way, I will not get a map or ask directions or turn on the GPS. I'll drive really fast, I'll probably go right by my exit, and I'll get lost, all because I thought I knew something that I didn't. So that is one of the things to watch out for. And so, so this is almost um, what you refer to as the second level thinking, like understanding what you're understanding. Exactly. And in general, understanding that you probably don't know as much as you think you do. Well, that's one of the important things. Um, but I, I like your phraseology, uh, you know, uh, understanding your understanding. The... The matter of uh, second-level thinking is very important. We talked before about, uh, I think your example was Apple. Great company. Most people who haven't thought about it enough, who haven't read what I've written, might say, great company, we should buy the stock. But other people who, who think more deeply 
might say, it's a great company, but it's not as great as everybody thinks. So it's probably overpriced. We should sell the stock. You have to, you know, we used to call it uh, reverse psychology when we were kids, but you have to, if you want, you know, investing is a competitive game. You are in there trying to find the cheap assets. And so is everybody else. You are in there trying to hold more at the right time and less at the wrong time. And so is everybody else. So to some extent, you have to learn to think different from others and better. Thinking different is not enough if it's worse. It has to be different and better. And that is the concept that enables you to find the errors that others are making. And when everybody says it's a great company, we should buy it, that thinking is not disciplined by the issue of price. And price gets carried too far. And there are very few assets that are so good that they can't become overpriced and lethal. That's what the book is all about, helping people develop this skill to do. I mean, and, and, you, bring, and you bring up so many good examples, but the foremost being everybody thought real estate is safe because sure. they could just come and take your house. Right. You know, so you're not going to default on it. And the default system, I mean, we saw many big hedge funds explode because they believed the, the ratings that, oh, this is safe. It's just a diverse portfolio sure. of uh, housing loans. But, but again, that's why, yes, it's, it's, you want to be cautious when everyone's happy. You want to be um, a skeptical when everyone says the world's ending and act accordingly. But I think another important principle you have is, and this is even related to your uh, fictional trip to Boston, you need to stay in the game. And, I, and maybe explain that a little further because that's kind of a, a motto of your business. Well, that's another of the important sayings in the investment business. Never forget about the man who was six foot tall, who drowned crossing the stream that was five feet deep on average. I never heard that story. <laughs> well, the point is to be a successful investor, at minimum, you have to survive. Surviving on the good days is not the issue. You have to be able to survive the bad days. The idea of surviving on average is not sufficient. You have to be able to survive on the worst days. So you have to adjust your portfolio so as to limit the risk so that you can survive on the worst of days. If you, if you get liquidated, carried out, if you don't have the conviction and you give up on the bad days, then by definition, you don't participate in the subsequent recovery, the cardinal sin of investing. So, I mean, on any given day, are, like you have an example in the book where a potential investor asked you, well, what if there's this many defaults? And you said, that's not happened in any one year ever. And they say, but what if it does happen? And then you say, well, it's not happening in one year. It's not happening in the history of the world. It's not happening this, that. And they kept saying, but what if it does happen? And you thought that that was a, you made the interesting point that it's okay to be skeptical in the worst of times and not be overly negative in the worst of times. But what's a scenario where your firm with $120 billion under management diversified across the world, across different investment assets, what would cause you to shudder and have a sleepless night? Other than like a nuclear war, you know, like that. 
Well, look, you go back to fourth quarter of 08, Lehman bankruptcy. You know, remember, we lost Merrill Lynch. We lost Bear Stearns. We lost Lehman Brothers, Wachovia Bank, uh, Washington Mutual. And everybody said, well, you know, Morgan Stanley's next. And after that, they're going to tee up Goldman Sachs. They're all going under. It's a downward spiral. It can't be arrested. Um, we're going to have the meltdown of the financial institutions. What I said at the time was, uh, if you're not scared, you don't understand what's going on. It was scary times. That scenario could not be discounted. First of all, there's no way to prove anything about the future. We were going through experiences that had never occurred before. So there was absolutely no way to say, no, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. But what you could say is, I don't think it's going to happen. We've never had anything like that before. I think that people are ignoring the recovery potential of the economy and the markets. And by the way, we can buy assets so cheaply today that we're probably covered even if the recovery is delayed and, and imperfect. Like even if, I mean, there was serious potential for 19 of the top 20 banks, say, to go out of business just because of, you know, they were highly leveraged, there was right. mark to market. But, but, but you're saying McDonald's still would have served hamburgers and people still would have had jobs at Target and McDonald's and Walmart and the economy would somehow slowly but surely come back and there would be all these opportunities like maybe cheap banks that you could buy or whatever. Exactly. Um, and so what I said in reaction to the experience that you described with that person who could not be satisfied with, a, who could not imagine uh, an assumption that was uh, suitably negative, what I realized was that it is our job as investors to be skeptical. If we believe all the stories we hear, then by definition, we can't be a second level thinker. We can't think differently and better. We have to disbelieve the common account. What that usually means, and everybody says, sure, I understand that. When you hear the Madoff claims, your job is, you know, we've gone up for 30 years in a row. We've returned between 9 and 11% every year for 30 years in a row. We never had a down month. You had to say, that's too good to be true. Everybody knows that. Oh, yes, well, but yes, you must say it's too good to be true. And what I, I had kind of an epiphany there at the lows of October 08, after I had the experience with that pension fund manager, because what I realized is, that when, the, when optimism is excessive, skepticism consists of saying that's too good to be true. Mm. But when optimism is in too short supply, skepticism consists of saying, no, that's too bad to be true. And very few people ever do that. It's hard because again, like if the average person just got fired from his job and they, they say, well, at least I have my stock market portfolio. And then they get their statement and like, oh my gosh, I don't have my stock market portfolio anymore. It just went down by 70%. They're scared. Yes. And then, and then, and then their, their investor buddy says, hey, but now's the time, mortgage the house and put everything into the stock market. 
They're like, I'm not going to do that. I just lost 70%. Like they, my experience is that's a bad strategy. Exactly. And you know, one of the most important chapters in the book is the one on attitudes towards risk. When things are going great, what do people say? Risk is my friend. The more risk I take, the more money you, uh, I make. And by the way, I can't see anything to be worried about. But in the bad times that you just described, what do they say? Risk is just another way to lose money. I don't care if I make a penny in the market again. I just don't want to lose any more. Get me out at any price. Those are the attitudes that create bottoms. So, so, so let's just say there's a quantifiable way to, to uh, measure the optimism and pessimism. We could right. probably come up with a well, variety Well, I describe some techniques in the book under what I call the poor man's guide to market assessment. Yeah, and I, and I think, uh, again, you know, there's an opportunity for things to be too optimistic for too long and too pessimistic for too long. And so that's the challenge then is, okay, things are optimistic or things are pessimistic, but they might, I can't predict when the pendulum will stop swinging. What's the next level of this second level thinking where I can still stay in the game, but participate in what I think is um, too, too much of a swing in one direction or the other? Well, it, it, it's a great question, James, and there's no easy answer. Because as I said before, we may know what's gonna happen or suspect, but we never know when. So the tough times that we wanna take advantage of, well, if, if I put all my money in today and the market turns next week, it's gonna be fabulous. But what if it continues down for another month, six months, year, two years? We have to arrange our financial affairs so that we can survive. And hmm. we and and this introduces uh, one of the key conundrums because we have to be able to survive on the worst day, but we can't quantify how bad the worst day can be. Now, if if I if you said to me, you know, I had a, if you hired Oak Tree to run some of your money, and you said, okay, Howard, here's here's my dough, but I had a terrible time in '08, couldn't sleep, I was close to bankruptcy. I never want to get there again. I want you to always be prepared to face a rerun of 08. We'd be paralyzed. You can't prepare every day for the worst case because you, you won't be able to take action. Right. And, and you know, as you mentioned, you know, Mark, you, you, it's full of Mark Twain quotes, you know, the, the market uh, often doesn't repeat, or history often doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And so, there might not be another situation so fast like 2006, which felt great, followed immediately by 2008, which was the worst year of everybody's life. Like right now, we're in this extended bull run. So people use basic statistics to stay, say, okay, this bull run has gone on for too long. But at the same time, most people I know are actually saying this bull run's gone on for too long. So there's actually not that much optimism. Exactly. It's kind of a confusing market. Yes. Well, you know, you're, you're right. I think that... One of the best things this market has going for it is that there is no euphoria or exuberance. You don't see the talking heads on TV saying, this is the last best chance to get into the market before it takes off for the moon. Uh, last time around 99, there was a book published called Dow 36,000, you may recall, yeah. which basically implied that the Dow was gonna triple the next day because stocks were too cheap. And there has not been a reprint of Dow 36,000. So you're right. 
Investors are not overly optimistic. However, there's a catch. What I say is that they are not thinking bullish, but they're acting bullish. And because the yields on money market and treasuries and high-grade bonds are so low and the expectations for stocks are not so high either, investors have had to push out the risk curve in order to earn a good return in a low return world. So now, they, most people have had to do riskier things than they have ever done in order to get a decent return. And when people behave in a risky manner, they make the market a risky place. So like what's an example of a riskier thing you've seen lately? Well, I think that, you know, I was lucky to start Citibank's high yield bond fund 40 years ago when high yield bonds were paying 12%. And most people wouldn't buy them because they said, young man, that's, that's uh, disreputable. It's unseemly. I'm sure you can make money that way, but it wouldn't be right. Nowadays, almost everybody's buying high yield bonds at 6% hmm. because they need the yield. And that's true of leveraged loans. It's true of private lending private credit. It's true of private equity and venture capital. Everybody is intoxicated by the higher returns that have been reported recently in the boom and turned off by the lower returns offered by safe assets. So, so I'm going to play a slight devil's advocate. You know, yields, of course, on, on treasury, on, on market-related bonds, are often low, not just because of optimism, but because uh, they're slightly higher than government bonds. And bond, government bonds have been kept artificially low right. since 2009 because they're afraid of a crisis again. But often government interest rates are low to match inflation uh, and they go up to sort of combat inflation. So my argument is, do we need a different definition of inflation? Typically, we take a basket of goods and we look at the prices going up or down. We forget about the fact that right now I have a supercomputer from 1980 in my pocket. So there's kind of a deep uh, productivity and technology and innovation has created a certain uh, massive deflation. Yeah, measuring inflation is very difficult. Um, on the one hand, it's very hard to capture in the statistic the improvement uh, in, in products that you describe. Uh, every day, let's say that every day the cost of the goods we buy is unchanged, but every day they get better. That means that really we have negative inflation because the cost right. of a the cost of a unit in, in a of good goodness, way, not yes. in the Warren Buffett right. scary way, right? Because not in a Great right. Depression right. deflation right. way, but actually it's a good thing for society. But on the other hand, the government tells everybody that we don't have much inflation today. It's running about two percent, which is barely above zero. And yet, I don't think many people feel that. I think many people feel that the cost of living is rising and that they're having trouble keeping up with it. So uh, I, 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 I'm one who happens to believe that that's an imperfect statistic. So, yeah, so it's interesting. So what, what do you think is happening there? Like, why does everybody feel like a little, it's a little tighter and yet we do have the deflation properties of innovation and the government's not even saying in the traditional way there's much inflation. What, what, what's going on? 
you know, I'm just not enough in a, of an economist uh, to be able to suss that out. Okay, but that's interesting. That's information in and of itself that you don't really need to be an economist to understand how to identify and deal with different market conditions. I'd rather be a psychologist. Uh, you know, if when you read the book, if you if you uh, weighed it out, you would find that there's much more weight uh, on understanding psychology and people's attitudes towards risk and where that stands today than in in parsing out the economy. And I think I think also there's an idea again, with this kind of almost meditative way of looking at your own thoughts or society's thoughts, there's this idea that runs through the book, which is that I need to understand that people are often irrational, including me, so and make decisions accordingly. And that helps me stay in the game as well. Exactly. Uh, you, you know, you talk to economists, they talk about something called economic man, somebody who is objective and rational and makes intelligent maximizing decisions. And that's the way things should run. But then you look at people and you see that they are emotional and they are subject to psychological swings and they don't often do what that objective emotional man would do. It is, it is because people are not hardwired to be unemotional that we have a lot of the cyclicality that we do. I mean, look at it this way. The value of stocks seems to go up nine, 10% a year. The return in the stock market has averaged uh, nine or 10 for the last uh, almost 90 years since the statistics have been computed. And yet, it almost never returns eight, nine, 10, 11, or 12. Usually it's up big or down. Why is that? Why is the normal experience so different from what the average return should be? And the answer is emotion. It goes from too hot to too cold. Too much optimism, too little optimism. And wouldn't you like to be able to catch that and profit from it? That's what the book's all about. Yeah, and so so I've, I have two more points on that, and then I, I know you have to get going. But I, I first want to mention, this is a great book for a lot of reasons, Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side by Howard Marks. Uh, first, I just enjoy the, the way you explain investing and risk and kind of recent historical booms and busts. It, you really help uh, the layman understand, but not talking down to them. It's a very sophisticated book, but it's understandable. It's, it's, it's well done, in other words. Thank so you, so, so it's, it's a great book to read for understanding the market. And, and I do think there's practical aspects one can take of it, even by just absorbing the, the wisdom and the philosophy and then some of the very practical things you say and the examples you use. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, like you seem like such a level-headed person. You've, you've had a consistent business for, for 23 years, which is, as you know, very hard to do. Uh, you've been in this industry since when? Uh, 68. So, so it's 1968. It's 2018, 50 years. So, you know, they say it takes 10,000 hours to be the best in the world or something. You've put in 
a good 50,000 hours to to clearly be, you know, to earn your position in the hierarchy of of great investors. What advice did your mom and dad give you when you were a kid <laughs> to make you this way? Well, it it really didn't come from my mom and dad. I I was lucky. I was I had some uh, I mean, I, my parents were perfectly supportive, but not. They didn't talk to me about investments. I wasn't one of those kids who. Was, I'm not talking about investments. Yes, I'm oh, talking about you being uh, so level-headed and consistent. Uh, you have a, you have how long have you been working with Bruce Karsh, your partner? Thirty-one years. Thirty-one years. Imagine working. Never with had partner. an argument. Never, Never had, had a serious disagreement. Okay, I have an argument with my girlfriend every other week. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you do it? Who? Someone gave you advice at some point that has helped you. Well, you know, I think that I think that a, a certain amount of humility was uh, inculcated in me, you know, and uh, I don't think I ever grew up cocky. Uh, and uh, Bruce too. And so each of us is open to the other's ideas. When we have an intellectual discussion, it, it, neither of us puts a great emphasis on winning. We want to get to the right answer. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have uh, enormous respect for each other, which I think is the key. And when he says something, uh, a position different from mine, my first reaction is to say, no, how can I diffuse that? How can I beat that? How can I prove he's wrong? My first reaction is to say, hey, what can I get from that? What can I take away? Is he right? Maybe he's right and, and I was wrong. And, you know, where that comes from, I can't really tell you. Uh, but I think uh, to, to achieve great things, I think that an important property, it's, it's a funny thing, it's really a, a conundrum because you have to have the courage of your convictions. You have to have confidence in, in the things you say. You have to be strong enough to act and of course, hopefully have it be based on a solid foundation. But at the same time, I think I'm a big believer in, in uh, intellectual humility, which means saying, number one, I could be wrong. Number two, he could be right. And it, you have to have that mix of confidence with intellectual humility. It sounds like a contradiction in terms, but you know, for me, for Bruce, for Warren Buffett dealing with Charlie Munger, et cetera, it is really uh, the secret to success. And also, uh, as you point out, a great partnership uh, is the secret to happiness. I mean, look at like, you know, Microsoft for year, many years was Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, um, Google, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, uh, you know, many great companies, even even Apple, you know, in, in the, the second part of its era was Steve Jobs, Tim Cook, and he had a good team of people. Uh, uh, it seems partner, no man is self-made We've is what we've, learned here on, on, on many of these podcasts is that it always requires a team. No one can do it on their own. Well, you know, uh, President Obama got into trouble for saying something like, you know, if you had a success, you didn't do that. What he meant was, if you had a success, you didn't do that alone. You had help. Somebody like me got a good education, a loving home, good partner, mentors early, and also luck. And I'm a great believer in luck. 
And there are deserving people who don't get ahead because they weren't lucky. And there are less deserving people who do get ahead because they're enormously lucky. I believe in luck. Uh, I don't believe that we automatically get our due, our just desserts. But there's, there is some component that one can create their luck. Like, and that's, uh, and like that's I will the take third a guess point. And I will say you read quite a bit. Yes, that's like right. Like how many books a month do you read? I'd say two or three. I'm a slow reader. What's like the last couple of books? Um, Factfulness. Uh, by Hans Rosling, great right. book. And uh, Thinking in Bets by Annie, Annie Duke. Duke. She's yes. been on the podcast. Yes. So, you know, those are some examples. And, and uh, uh, they are both enlightening, but also interesting. So, so again, uh, Mastering the Market Cycle by Howard Marks. I've been a fan and a follower of your writings for so long. It's such a pleasure to be able to talk to you about investing on this podcast. I wish we could talk for five hours more. I have, I have a ton more questions, but I'll tell you one little story. Sure. And you'll say thank you to me at the end of that story, at the end of this story. It's, it's not gonna be a humble story. Um, but in 2009, I uh, was living on 15 Broad Street, directly across the street from New York Stock Exchange. Everyone was depressed every day. Like I would just see, I would wake up at nine, nine thirty. I'd I'd walk outside. I'd see the traders were just walking, looking at the ground while they were walking into the exchange. No one was happy. Everyone was depressed, and the markets kept going down. It was the worst ever. I mean, March two thousand nine was worse in the market levels than even in two thousand eight. So I went to the local drugstore and I bought a ton of chocolates. <laughs> chocolates have oxytocin, trigger oxytocin neurochemicals, which increase risk-taking behavior. And I just simply handed out chocolates to every trader walking into the New York Stock Exchange, March 9th, 2009, to the absolute low of the market. Boom, you're welcome. I saved the world economy. Thank you very much, James. <laughs> and, and thank you for having me here today. Thank you, Howard. I really appreciate it. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.